Last uh, Sunday, uh, it's great to be back with you. Last Sunday, um, actually the whole weekend, about 60 of us from Church on Mill were up in Prescott enjoying a uh, Christian Challenge Life Among the Nations retreat with students from around uh, the state. We had a great time thinking about worship uh, together and um, it's wonderful to be part of a church family where there is uh, life and vibrancy and um, ministry being done out to other churches as well. So thank you for your prayers and support. Pastor Tad got us started in chapter three by uh, sharing with us from the first seven verses. This morning, we will uh, finish out the rest of the chapter. If you need uh, a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, you should be able to find one and We'll be on page two in those Bibles, in those blue Bibles. We are slowly working our way through this first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. Tad shared with us from the first seven verses uh, this big, big idea, his summary statement, uh, a lack of belief in God's word and character led humanity to break God's covenant. Lack of belief in God's word and character led humanity to break God's covenant. Those are the first uh, seven verses. This morning we're gonna consider these sorts of questions. Uh, What were the effects of that covenant breaking? What results happened then and continue to happen today? What have the lives, uh, how have the lives of every person since Genesis 3, 1 to 7, been affected? And is there any hope after such a tragic fall? These are the sorts of things we'll consider as we try to uh, briefly summarize and look through the rest of the chapter. This is, of course, one of the most consequential chapters in the entire Bible. We could spend months in these first three chapters. This one will uh, show us why there is pain, hardship, difficulty, tragedy, sin, and death in the world. All of that comes from this chapter. There are three very clear sections, and we'll just take them one by one. The first is is a confrontation, starting in verse eight. Follow along with me, if you would. And they, that's um, Adam, and up to this point, she has not been yet named. It's the woman, Adam's wife. We'll know in a moment that her name is Eve, but that's yet to be revealed. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? And he, that's Adam, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Following Adam and Eve's 
tragic rebellion, God approached them in the garden in order to confront them in their sin. Now, remember up to this point, Eden is this perfect place where God had placed Adam and then also created Eve. It was a paradise, a temple of sorts, where they met with God, enjoyed each other, and began to fulfill the creation mandate found back in Genesis chapter 1. It was a paradise, a wonderful place. And yet this garden became the scene of covenant breaking. The first couple made the tragic decision to disbelieve God's word and to distrust God's character. And things quite literally have never been the same since. All of what is difficult in this life has its roots back in this decision. A careful consideration of this confrontation, therefore, will help us not only understand this chapter, but also our own lives as well. When this first human couple partook of the tree that God commanded them to avoid, consequences immediately began to ensue. Even before God came and confronted them. If we read the story slowly, we'll see that. And it helps us to understand what happens when we sin, although the circumstances are different. Consider, for example, that Adam and Eve up to this moment had never hidden from God. Why would they? As his image bearers, they were in a state of innocence before him. They had nothing to feel guilty about. No shame, no pride, no reason, therefore, to hide. But immediately after they sinned, they sensed shame between each other. Their first bit of clothing to cover themselves was to cover themselves from the embarrassment of one another, something they'd never felt before then. And then, as God came, they hid and they felt a sense of dread immediately well up. Again, that was something they'd never known. When Adam said in verse 10 that he was naked and thus hid himself, that is physical, but it's not merely physical. You see, the nakedness of Adam and Eve was an indicator a sign, if you will, of their innocence and their bliss. But now with the knowledge of good and evil, their nakedness became a source of shame. God's rhetorical questions that we just read are asked not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he's trying to draw out repentance and confession from Adam and Eve. In other words, God was asking, where are you? Not for his sake, but for theirs. In addition to the shame and fear they felt, it's crucial we see from this paragraph that there is within fallen humanity a a propensity to make excuses and to blame others. Did you notice that as we read? Verse 12 is one of those verses that's 
strikes me like fingers running down a chalkboard. When God calls out to Adam and gives him a chance to repent, to admit his wrong, to stand up and confess that what he'd done, he now knew to be, in fact, better if he had never done. He blames. Rather than honesty, he blames. He blames first his wife, and then even more shockingly, he blames God. Do you see that in verse 12? The man said, the woman whom you gave me. Adam is saying, my disobedience is her fault, and it's your fault, God. Now, almost certainly, Eve also blames down in verse 13. It is true that the serpent deceived her, as Tad shared with us last week. But she's blaming the tempter rather than taking responsibility for her actions. And we human beings have been blaming ever since. Have you done it this morning already? This is a very common thing that we do. The fallen impulse is to hide and point to somebody else. It started here. It helps for us to know that. Think back over this past week, would you? At best, there were probably moments you'll recall to mind in which you recognize you were tempted to blame, but by God's grace, you didn't. At worst, someone else absorbed the sin and its effects of your own actions. Whether confronted or not, brothers and sisters, we do well to rehearse the gospel of Christ, a gospel that teaches us we need never to hide. We need never to blame. We need never to point the finger. Because in Christ, those sins have all been atoned for. The consequences have been dealt with. The relationship we have with God has been restored. And therefore, why blame? Our sin and God's grace can become opportunities for boasting. Boasting that God has forgiven us yet again. We need never hide. We need never blame. Instead, we can acknowledge, repent, and enjoy the forgiveness of God. Now, because in this passage, it's bound up this blaming with a couple, I think I would be remiss not to speak to the couples. I encourage you to consider husband or wife if finger pointing at your spouse is a habit. Is this something that you customarily do? That wretched and totally unhelpful way of treating each other is as old as our ancestors. And surely in most fights in a marriage, both husband and wife have contributed to whatever situation has unfolded. But again, in Christ, a husband and wife need not blame. It doesn't accomplish anything good. It's unnecessary and unhelpful. 
Instead, especially to the men, I would say, based on my own experience, even if my percentage is only 1%, you do well to be the first to speak up, to repent, to confess, and embrace that 1% as 100%. This is one way to be like Christ, to love and lead. Even though he, of course, never sinned, he took initiative. And that is one way in which we can do that. Now, before we read the next section of verses, there's one other thing that's crucial in the story to observe that's easy to miss. Notice that when God came to confront Adam and Eve, he called out for Adam, not for Adam and Eve. Check, check me. Reread the paragraph for yourself. God came saying, Adam, where are you? Not, hey, first couple, where are you? Or, hey, Adam and your wife, where are you? In verse 8, both man and woman are hiding themselves from God. Yet in verse 9, Adam is God's object. And the you in that verse is singular. It's specific to Adam. Even more to the point of what I'm trying to draw out. If you think back chronologically to where we've been, where we've been so far as a church in this chapter, when the first sin took place, the first eating of the tree, who did it? It was the woman. It was the woman and then the man. So why in the world did God first confront the husband? Well, friends, the plain teaching of these first three chapters of the Bible, along with the whole rest of the biblical story, is that God holds the husband accountable for the well-being of his family. Adam represented his family, and he represented all of humanity. Adam's responsibility was to love his wife and lead her into all forms of flourishing. Yet at the precise moment she needed that most, when she was being tempted, he did nothing to protect her. And instead, he joined in her sin. And like so many men after him, Adam abdicated. And such abdication resulted in tremendous pain. Husbands or men who someday want to be husbands. This passage is, is a serious warning to us to understand the responsibility we take if we take the responsibility to be husbands. God came calling for Adam because Adam was ultimately accountable to God for the spiritual health and direction of his family. And although Eve sinned first, Adam was ultimately accountable and responsible. 
Men, if you think it's cool to be in charge because you get to do what you want to do, this passage is a most sobering correction. This is not about you getting what you want. It's about you loving and laboring and leading for the good of another. Under the lordship of King Jesus, yes, you bear the responsibility as head, but that means you'll be held accountable by God for what you do as head. This isn't about getting what you want, but rather leading in a way consistent with the character of God. So Adam and Eve, they, they disobeyed God. They broke the covenant. God confronted them. And not only did they have immediate consequences, we'll also find that there are enduring, lasting consequences as well in the rest of the chapter. The next section will speak to each party, first to the serpent, then to the woman, and finally to Adam. Look with me, if you would, at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What consequences came from the fall? Well, it's evident in this curse that something more than a slithery snake is involved. Snakes, after all, don't speak. And in the previous passage, chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, this serpent spoke, spoke to the woman. Later, passages in the Bible are helpful. They're instructive to us to understand what's going on here. Revelation 12 and 20, if you're taking notes, Revelation 12 and 20 both refer to this ancient serpent as three, with three titles or names. He is the devil. He is Satan. He is the deceiver. And so as weird as it sounds... In the garden, the devil himself embodied a snake. He possessed it. He functioned through it. Now, I've never seen anything like that. Nor should we think that it's normal or typical. But in Eden, it did happen. And this deception brought about a curse, both on the physical snake that we know today and on Satan himself. Now there's debate about this, but it's likely, at least the way I would understand it, that just like the rainbow took on new significance after the flood, the snake and its movement on the ground took on new and ongoing significance after the devil used it to deceive the woman. Think of sayings we would use today like, eat my dust. What do we mean when we say that? Well, we're, we're trying to humiliate 
the other person. There's a description here of how the snake's lowly stature is a perpetual reminder of Satan's deception and his demise. And I think the most readily um, obvious application from this is to say, if you have a snake for a pet, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Growing up, my brother had, uh, my middle brother had a snake for a while until it uh, got out of its home and my parents found it under their bed. That was the end of the snake. Friend, none of us this morning question if there's evil in this world. The struggle between good and evil emerges within humanity from this day that Satan deceived the woman. She ate, Adam ate too, all rejecting God's good rule. Ever since his own fall from being an angel, Satan's aim has been to steal, kill, and destroy. And that has and it will cost him dearly. In fact, the very first mention of what the Bible will come later to describe as the gospel is here in seed form in verse 15. This reference to the woman's offspring and the bruising or crushing of the serpent's head is ultimately a picture of what is accomplished in Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Next, God turned from the serpent to the woman and the consequences of her sin will fall most directly on her roles as mother and wife. You'll see in a single verse, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Before disobeying God, before this discipline was given, both Marriage, and if they had had children, they hadn't yet, both marriage and children would have been sources only of joy, fulfillment, and fruitfulness. They knew nothing else. But after disobeying God, both mothering and marriage became difficult. The pain of childbearing is described as being increased exponentially. And the woman's desires became in opposition to her husband, meaning she'd struggle at this point with a resistance to his headship. And he would struggle to exercise it responsibly and humbly. Now, why marriage and mothering in verse 16? Why are those the places that God proverbially placed his thumb and the effects of sin would be the most pressing. 
Well, it's because the existing ordinary responsibilities, those things consistent with her nature and God's design in the covenant, those are the issues that would bear the brunt of her sin. That's, of course, not to say that every single woman who would ever be would be married or have children. But it is to say that those are the things unique to women. The same would be true of Adam. That those responsibilities or roles existing pre-fall would be what would become much more difficult post-fall. It didn't create something that wasn't there, but rather it frustrated what is there. Look with me if you would. I think it'll make this even more clear if we look at Adam, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. One, one thing that's easy to miss is notice that of Satan, of the serpent, the serpent is cursed. But when it comes to people, the ground is cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Who's encouraged that you came to church this morning? <laughs> Adam's consequences for disobeying God fell in two primary areas. First, his responsibility to provide for his family, and second, in his functioning as head of humanity. His providing, initially, of course, is not in the sense of he would get in his car, he'd drive to the office, he'd do his work for two weeks, he'd get his check deposited into his bank account, and then he could provide for his family. It was actually a long, 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 long time in humanity before that's how things worked. Now this provision was the provision by using your hands to produce, to bring about food. His providing became exponentially more difficult. You see, when, when humanity sinned, even the physical earth was affected. Even the earth, in a sense, fell out of that perfect harmony with God. God cursed the ground. Thorns and thistles now marked the ground outside of Eden. Lifelong, toilsome, frustrating labor would now become normal. Have you experienced any of those things in work? this year. I'll just assume you had a great last week. So, so how about the rest of the year so far? Has anything at work been hard? 
been disappointing, been ridiculously complicated when it could have been rather easy? Has there been conflict? Has there been finger pointing? Has thorns and thistles made things take longer and been more painful than it would have been essential for them to be? Well, yes, 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 yes. Why? Well, sure, there are proximate causes to all those things, but, but ultimately, it's, it's because of this. Work is not cursed, and work is not a curse, and work you shouldn't curse about. Work is good. Work is a gift. Work is part of what we do as people made in the image of God, if we're able physically. And yet work will be more difficult because of sin. And as head of humanity, eventually, Adam and all who would follow him would face physical death. Now you may remember back earlier in Genesis when the original instruction was given, don't eat from that tree, the prohibition was given along with its consequence, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, Adam didn't die that day in a physical sense. He did die spiritually, and he will eventually die physically. At least by observation, if not by experience, we're all acquainted with the realities described in these consequences. This is normal life. Now notice none of these things are commands to us that we're supposed to make these things more difficult. Rather, they're simply God stating that because his creatures rebelled, this is the way things now will be. The most painful of all the consequences of the fall is the expulsion from the garden. Yes, marriage can be hard. Yes, toilsome jobs are tough. Yes, childbearing is painful. There are no doubt endless difficulties associated with each of those things. But the fact that breaking the covenant brought banishment is the worst of all the judgments. Because you see, no longer would Adam and Eve enjoy unhindered harmony with God. No longer would they enjoy constant peace with each other in a garden paradise, naked and unashamed. Instead, they'd be removed from Eden, banished from the garden so that they couldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever in this fallen condition. Now they're out of peace with God and each other. Perhaps you've heard of the famous book, Paradise Lost, that is talking about this. Paradise was lost that day. Banished to thorns and thistles, and as the passage tells us, eventually back to the dust from which we've come. The way the New Testament says it is that the wages of sin is death. This death is exactly what God had warned Adam would come. 
and yet they broke covenant anyway. Now, I've given you a lot of bad news. This is mostly a bad news passage. But it's not all bad news, actually. If we read it closely, we will find the text seasoned with grace, sprinkled with the love of God. Breaking covenant brought banishment, but even then, God brought grace. Look at that with me, if you would, in the final section of this chapter. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. I remember as a child thinking that meant they had no skin. <laughs> I had a nightmare about it one time. <clears throat> Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like us, one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I've entitled this final section covering as a way to help us think about God's covering, God's grace, pointing especially to verse 21 as one of many signs in this passage of God's grace even in the tragic fall of humanity. Rather than immediate physical death, which they were certainly due. Instead, God chose to preserve humanity. All of us are here because God chose to preserve humanity. Verse 20 is the first time in the narrative that the woman's name is given. Adam named her Eve. The name Eve means life or living. It's a beautiful picture of how God has made women. Despite the effects of their cosmic rebellion, Eve would become the mother of all humans who would come after her. Humanity survived this tragic decision, though we're all naturally banished from Eden. Another sign of God's grace is God covering Adam and his wife with garments of animal skins. In grace, the offended one chose to cover the offender. This, of course, points ahead ultimately to God's people being clothed with Christ, washed of all condemnation, freed from shame, guilt removed, covered by the righteousness of the Son. That's good news. This son, Jesus, is the offspring who eventually came to smash Satan's head in his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. Early signs of this coming reality are all over this account. 
And we don't have time to go into many of them, but let me point to one of the most evident signs. Notice in verse 24, it refers to something called cherubim. Cherubim are a type of angel, particularly powerful angels, who were set to guard the entrance to the garden. They were to protect Adam and Eve from entry and eating that particular tree. Sinful Adam and Eve could no longer enter the paradise they enjoyed, the place of so many blessings and God's revealed presence. These cherubim come up later in the biblical story. And here they're, they're meant to help us understand what comes later. Consider, for example, that when the tabernacle first and then the temple is built and there is a veil covering the holy place from the most holy place, guess what's stitched into the veil? Two cherubim. They blocked access to the holy of holies just like they blocked access here. And then inside that Holy of Holy, above the Ark of the Covenant, is molded to cherubim, guarding over and protecting that spot where on the earth God's presence was most fully revealed, allowing the people to be near God, but not so near that they would be incinerated. Fast forward through the rest of your Old Testament and we'll get to the pages of the Gospels. As Jesus hung on a cross bearing the weight of humanity's sin, he who became sin knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When the sacrifice was finished and it was fully acceptable to God, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, cherubim falling away. Because now all who are in Christ are welcomed in the presence of God. We need not fear. We can eat and enjoy the tree of life, the one that lasts forever. We know peace and a shame-removed relationship with God once again because of Jesus. Now, church, there's no going back to the Garden of Eden. It, it doesn't even exist anymore. Oh, no. God has something even better for his people. Eden was only a beginning. God has created and is finishing something even better. And the final chapter of the Bible gives us a picture of what's to come. If you look with me on the screens, Revelation 22 says this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp for sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Amen. I'm ready. How about you? Paradise was lost when Adam and Eve sinned, but paradise has been regained in Christ. And that heavenly Jerusalem we just read of is the future for God's people upon his return. Friend, the only way to be headed for that place where there's nothing accursed is to be made right with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the scriptures tell us that whereas death spread through sin, the sin of the first Adam, life now spreads through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. For while Adam represented all humanity, Jesus represents all God's new humanity, his church of redeemed saints. This is why the book of Romans, Tad referred to a few verses in Romans 5 last week. Here's one more. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundant grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If you haven't yet, I hope you'll turn to him today, turning from sin, trusting in him. And if you have, I hope this sobering look at Genesis 3 will cause you to afresh and anew have affections for this one who loved you so. Father, would you minister your word to each one of us? Would you take us, help us to take sin with the seriousness that Genesis 3 calls for and reveals? That we would not minimize it or blame. That when we fail, we would repent and walk again in your forgiveness. Help us to remember this coming week that Every person we see has desperate need of you. And that the only, the only hope for our Genesis 3 world is Jesus Christ. May we share him courageously and kindly. It's in his name. Amen.